0: We were talking a little bit about the list of Weezer songs that you ranked uh, (laughs) towards the beginning of this year. That was quite a project, and uh, we went through that whole thing. (laughs) Mark and I devoured that, yeah. (laughs) That is definitely some Mark
1: and Tony candy, for sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what I was thinking with that one. That was that was the torture I inflicted upon myself. So well, and there there's got to be what like at least two hundred more Weezer
1: songs that have been released since then. So <laughs>
2: yeah, <can> exactly, <laughs> probably already out of date. Gonna do an update. Yeah. You,
0: yeah, you do need to update that every year. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's that new one about having a dog. <laughs> I heard that recently. I don't know if you're joking or not. No, it's real.
0: <laughs> but I was really waiting
1: for Mark to say something about how uh, Weezer. <laughs> so speaking of Weezer, uh, naked, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That was my segue (laughs) (laughs) somehow. Yeah, I was really interested. All right.
0: Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the film podcast where truth comes at 24 frames per second, but so does a lot of nasty shit. I'm Mark Tavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're kicking off season two with film critic Alex Dowd, former film editor of the AV Club and now culture editor of Cron to help us tackle two films that beg the question, how much time can you really spend with a truly repellent main character? It's easy enough to root for a good anti-hero, but some movies challenge us to identify with really vile so-called protagonists to that end, we're looking at Mike Lee's harrowing 1993 character study, Naked, and Neil LeBute's 1997 dive into toxic masculinity in the company of men. Welcome to the Boys Club.
1: Boys Club. It took us forever to realize how funny pairing the two titles together is. a Bunch of naked guys being in the company of each other. In the
0: company of men naked will be the title of this episode. But just boys being naked uh, in the
1: company of each other.
0: Well, thanks for that segue, Seth, but- That's what he brought me on to do. I do want to welcome Alex Dowd. You may know him as A.A. A. Dowd, previously the longtime film editor of the AV Club and Time Out Chicago. Today, he is the culture editor at Houston's Cron, home to all kinds of great film and TV writing from him and others. You can also find his reviews at Digital Trends or see his byline in publications such as Vulture, Rolling Stone, The Washington Post, The Guardian, The Ringer, The Week, Empire, the list goes on. So uh, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time from all of your many jobs here to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm sorry that it was for these particular movies, I'm sure you watch them in succession, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's time to kind of wipe the muck off.
2: <laughs> it's a bleak set, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, 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 a, as a double feature. Well, well paired,
0: though, I will say. There's a lot of overlap between these two films. Yes, I agree. More than I realized, really, even when we, when we yeah. first set out to do this. Was there anything in particular about these? I know we have kind of a long list that we, you know, show to guests as far as movies to pick. Was there anything that stuck out in particular about these two? Well, I would say "In the Company of Men" grabbed me immediately as something to talk
2: about because I think that that film has uh, has proven pretty prescient in uh, in the years since. I think that there's uh, the kind of uh, growth of the men's rights movement. You can kind of see the seeds of that in this film. I mean, obviously, in 1997, nobody was using nobody was saying uh, MRA or using words like incel, but a lot of that is right here in this film. Um, so I think he was really recognizing that as something that was. Um, a cultural movement that was, uh, that we were sort of on the cusp of. Um, so
0: that kind of immediately grabbed me. Yeah, I can definitely see that, especially, you know, certain current events that remain nameless, maybe involving a company like Twitter kind of brings to mind the kind of personalities, uh, and ideologies out there that we're confronted with every day. And you're right for a movie that came out in 1997, it's still pretty harrowing today. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that this thing is, um,
2: pre-internet because so much of the, like so much of the toxic behavior that he's recognizing in real life in this film has now just migrated online, you know? Oh yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: And, uh, yeah, I remember one of the first things I watched actually was a YouTube video that was from the Criterion DVD of Naked, which is a introduction interview with Neil Labute, the, uh, writer director of In the company of men talking about naked, uh, which was one of those things that like, it's very eloquently and it makes a whole lot of sense once you've seen in the company of men that they are like, yeah, they're in ways, in some ways, like spiritual
0: companions or something or evil spirit companions. Yes.
1: Demon (laughs) companions.
0: Yeah, that was a crazy connection to see that interview with him, uh, which you can easily find on YouTube or the Criterion channel if you have. Um, because we are starting with Naked rather than In the Company of Men, which is different in many ways, but very similar in others. Uh, So just to start off that discussion, uh, we should talk about Mike Lee a little bit, because um, unlike Neil LeBute, he has a uh, widely acclaimed filmography, many films in there that he's known for, um, which are generally very realistic, character-driven, often class-conscious dramas or comedy dramas. Um, like Meantime, Life is Sweet, uh, Secrets and Lies, which he won the Palme d'Or can for as his follow-up to Naked in 1996. But he has branched out. He's done biopics like the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan film Topsy Turvy and uh, Mr. Turner. And it's kind of a institution at this point, you know? He w- has worked with a lot of actors like Gary Oldman, Tim Roth, uh, Timothy Spall, Phil Daniels, Jim Broadbent, the list goes on and on. Uh, David Thewlis, of course, that we'll get to. And uh, some of them, some of these movies deal with rougher material than others, but I think it's fair to say there is generally a streak of humanism that goes through his movies, especially if you look at something like Happy-Go-Lucky, which I think is kind of like the the good twin to this movie. Include. Like the polar opposite. The anti-naked. Yeah, it's, yeah, the anti-naked. Yeah, so I mean, are you guys generally, you know, Mike Lee fans? I assume, or anything stick out in his filmography in particular for you besides this? I think
2: this is his best movie, personally. Even though it's in some ways, I think it's kind of uncharacteristic of him because he normally isn't this um, fixated on 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 people this despicable. I guess I'd say. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm. A, I'm. I, I like most of his films, to be honest. I, I I'm a big fan of Mr. Turner as well. That's his biopic about about the painter um but i think this is there's something special about this one beyond just that it's so caustic you know
1: yeah i think it is pretty interesting that sort of the entry points quite often for him are his like polar opposite films which like well this one it does none of the none of them really come close to the just sheer bile coming out of this one but Uh, Yeah, the the other entryway is usually Life is Sweet, I feel like, or something like that, which was the movie that came out before this, which was a relative success at the time and was is, you know, like the title says, it has some darkness in it for sure. But it is about how life is sweet. And it's a, a look at the nice little moments in life and nothing all that wild really happens by the end of it. It must have been a bit of a shock for audiences to find out that this was the follow-up. Everything is gray, everything is dark, and our main character is, among other things, just like a toxic, violent human being, and that's who we spend two plus hours with. Yeah, life is not
2: sweet. (laughs) I have to wonder, on some level, how taxing this must have been as a film to to make, and particularly a film to prepare for, because. you know, Lee, Lee has kind of a unique process as a filmmaker, uh, and to my knowledge, he still does this, but, uh, going back to pretty early in his career, he'll get together with a group of actors and they'll figure out who these characters are in advance. And then he will write a screenplay around the characters that they've created in, in, in this kind of workshop process. Sometimes it'll be months on end. And I just have to imagine like thulis really figuring out who this character is. It must've been, um, Kind of exhausting as a process to live in that space for as long as he did.
1: There's even interviews from a couple of years ago with Mike Lee. He, he was talking about how he was being interviewed with a bunch of actors, and they were and they always ask about the process, and they said a bunch of things, and then afterwards, Mike Lee said that, uh, "Well, we didn't say any lies necessarily, but we didn't really explain it." Uh, which it's it is interesting that there is like always this fixation and mystery around how this happens and what aspects are improvisational and which aspects are concrete and when it's when it's being in the moment when it's not and it is interesting to try and chart that and I think that's probably why Mike Lee is a little mysterious about it um, leaves, leaves it a little unspoken for us to sort of wonder about it
0: or ideally not wonder about it, I think is the trick. The result is something that often feels improvised, even though apparently he does boil it down to a script that they generally stick to, but they start out as improvisation. So in a way, the cast are kind of the co-writers of all of his movies. And the result are films that are very character-focused. They don't feel mapped out, or like they are taking off plot points or being beholden to any kind of like outside design to them. Um, Not all the time, but a lot of times, and especially in a movie like Naked, you can feel like these are people who have a life beyond the movie and that everything is totally depending on them. And generally, a lot of times, one central performance. Um, Now with Naked, this was a big breakthrough for David Thewlis in particular, who won Best Actor at and Mike Lee won Best Director. And I would say that, I mean, this has there. Ha, he hasn't really had a role since then that I think he comes close to his being as associated with him. You know, unless of course anyone who's in a Harry Potter movie is always going to have that come up. But course, you don't so. want to show this to your Harry Potter fan, you know, niece or nephew.
1: <laughs> Even though he does make a joke about werewolves in it, which was very. <laughs> lovely oh, you're though. right. So log. <laughs>
0: Am I right now? But yeah, isn't that interesting, though? Like, I, I was trying to think, oh, yeah, David Thulis, and then I'm looking through his filmography at other roles, and there not a whole lot stands out, even though he's been in lots of movies, lots of studio movies. I don't know, am I forgetting anything?
2: I don't think so. I was thinking about the same thing, actually, today, and, and how much... Um, I mean, a role like Johnny and Naked is sort of a role of a lifetime. He just had it pretty early in his career, but you would think that at this point in his career he would have had something that felt as substantial, you know, because he i mean he's remarkable in this film and and just seeing him tackle something that gave him an opportunity to 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 sink his teeth into something with dialogue as good as the dialogue in this film you know um but there's there's not a lot of roles in his in his larger filmography that that stand up to this
1: yeah just by giving him some fucking freedom it seems like like with this process it sounds like he just got so entrenched in it i read that he like he just read a bunch of books like from like medical stuff to Buddhism to chaos theory. And just so much like studying about how to like create this guy. And it, I heard that he really inhabited it to the point where he was almost like violent on set at certain points. Like it was like uh, just so into it.
0: Yeah. Well, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, I mean, let's talk about Johnny because this, you know, the movie is called Naked, but it could just as well be called Johnny that he's the Uh, he feels like he's in every frame of the movie. Although there are some scenes that give uh, other characters room to breathe as well. But really the, for anyone who is used to Mike Lee's kind of, you know, sweeter side, the very first shot of this movie just lays waste to that. (laughs) Where we, we see Johnny uh, committing a sexual assault, which is the first of kind of quite a few in this movie. Not all of which are committed by him. There is another character we'll get to. And, That's kind of the dividing line right there because Johnny is a uh, angry, bitter person, does not seem to have a job or it's hard to imagine him ever having had a job. But although we don't find out a lot about his past, clearly he is very well read and literary. We see him reading the Bible, talking about philosophy. And uh, he's loquacious. He's a constant commenter on everything that's going on around him. At the same time, he is uh, bitter, angry, violent, uh, dis- treats people despicably. And these two sides of his character are, I think, the whole center of the movie. And basically, the movie more or less is kind of his odyssey into the nights. You know, we do meet some other characters, uh, an ex girlfriend and her roommate who he comes back to off and on. But generally, it's kind of like these late night encounters that he has throughout uh, the seedy underbelly of London. It is interesting that it begins with that rape scene that it, because it is s- such a
1: feature of Johnny's experience that... So much of the plot is kind of strung together on his relationships with women, which are oftentimes toxic and uh, violent, which that that instigates him running away, stealing a car and just driving off. And I think the only place he knows to go to is an ex-girlfriend's house, uh, which he drives there and ditches the car and immediately proceeds to meet her roommate who is there, Sophie, who is like this wonderful kind of bubbly but a little broken kind of goth chick who lives there and immediately strikes up a friendship that really quickly becomes also sort of this like digging his claws in a little bit, toying with her like he does with most people because he can be very charming and he knows that and he can like sort of lure them in with all his like wild intellectual jokes and then you feel him sort of like tightening the vice of Playing games with them and, play, play, like, uh, sort of in a way that he's he's getting off on the fact that he he thinks or is in some cases like more intelligent and understands the situation more than the other person, and he really exploits that. F- and
0: uh, we see with Sophie, yeah. So, so Alex, how do you you know how do you process Johnny as a protagonist? I
1: mean, as
2: you said, the the opening shot. I was going to say the opening scene of the movie, but really, the opening shot of it immediately is this gauntlet thrown down. I mean, are we going to, will the audience accept following a character who's doing this in the very first moment that we see him? And um, I think that becomes kind of what, the challenge the film is setting for audiences and for itself to keep us interested in this person. And um, he does have a, a magnetic charm, which I think is part of the discomforting power of the film is that we sort of understand why people would be drawn to him, why even people in his life who he's likely mistreated I mean, so, I mean, this woman, this woman, he comes and, um, Louise, is that her name? I think, I believe it's Louise. Yeah. Louise, who he comes to stay with. I mean, we're sort of led to understand that they were probably previously lovers earlier in their life. Um, but it's, it's been a while since they've seen each other. And based on what we've seen of him already, we kind of think, why isn't she immediately throwing him out of, out of her place? You know, the moment she sees him, especially because he's immediately, very rude and toxic to her um but the movie at that point is already kind of pulling you into 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 his his very particular kind of appeal and, and his in his charisma I, I think the movie is partially about the notion that um there are people who use their, their feeling of uh, they, they use their kind of nihilism about the world and this 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 sort of superior feeling they have about uh, understanding the world better than other people as a license to do whatever they want and treat people however they want, because if nothing matters, then their behavior doesn't matter. You know?
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, because you know, a lot, we meet a lot of different people in this movie that, uh, for the most part are dealing with some kind of a despair, um, in their own way, whether it's a, you know, major character like Louise or Sophie um, you know, we see Sophie, who kind of descends into this desperate attachment to Johnny. You know, which is not a not a great you know choice in the the object of your affection. And he treats her like garbage, of course. But you know, he meets a lot of people. Whether it's the lady who's being watched through the window by a security guard, and he just helps himself inside and talks to her, and she's in this almost kind of catatonic state of desperation or sadness, and uh, there's a waitress that he sees later who ends up picking him out of the house of just very sad, directionless, uh, sometimes homeless people, and they're all kind of dealing with these things in their own way. And when when I see Johnny, it just seems like his way is just to talk and talk and talk. And it is often funny and clever and witty, and that's what makes the film watchable to the extent that it is. But I think that Mike Lee is careful to remind us not to be too charmed by him, because then we see him just do the, the really ugly acts of violence against people in this.
2: Yeah, I mean, he can't go 10 minutes without doing something despicable to somebody, you know? I actually watching it this time, I, I couldn't help but think of um of After Hours, the Martin Scorsese movie. I never really made that connection before, but some of the middle of this film anyway, I think plays a little bit like that, except that in that film Griffin Dunn is sort of having the world happen to him. And I feel like in this film, Johnny is very much
1: happening to the rest of the world. Yeah, he's inflicting himself. Yeah. He's like a toxic
0: Alice in a in a Oh, Really, really sad wonderland. <laughs> I love that you brought up After Hours because the last time that I watched this, I was thinking about Eyes Wide Shut, which it's a very imperfect comparison because I know that, you know, that movie is a very different protagonist and the whole tone of it is more like dreamlike and artificial and involves upper class. Christmas. Oh, there's the Christmas connection. Um, whereas here, we're getting the kind of very bottom of the totem pole uh, of London and there's, it's much more realistic, but structurally it is like he's setting out on this odyssey and he's encountering all of these different characters and making kind of almost connections that are just never consummated, whether that's literal, uh, in some cases, or it ends with him just getting his ass kicked, um, or he, him never wanting to get too close to someone that if the whole way that he regards sexuality is through violence and that seems like too close of a level of relating as a human. And so even when Sophie, who becomes obsessed with him, kind of, uh, when he first assaults her, it's kind of in, I believe it's in response to her saying something like, I understand you, or I like you. And I know it's kind of that old joke maybe of, you know, not wanting to be part of a club that would have you in it. I found it interesting to think of it, I guess, in those terms, well, I mean, it's a, it's
2: a dark night of the soul, right? Except that I think the movie sort of suggests, unlike say Cruz's character in in Eyes Wide Shut, I think this is a character who has um, basically made himself immune to to learning those kind of lessons. He's not somebody who is who is uh, going to take any anything from these experiences and and change as a character. You know, he, he's he's kind of immune to that kind of development.
1: Well, yeah, he you you get the feeling that he knows. He, he he does know that he is toxic and that he is a problem. Uh, he, of course, throws it out at the world that, like, you know, he is, you know, he can make up all kinds of excuses and things about how, like, the world is evil and that I inhabit. So I am just, you know, mirroring it back at them and so, therefore, it doesn't matter and everything. Um, which is, you know, he, 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 like, weaves all kinds of, like, convincing arguments for nihilism and just, like, it's showing just like how much more authentic he is than uh just these 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 dull drones that he meets on the street or whatever it is, but it's quite often very easily deflected, especially summed up in such a simple way by the security guard who he has the maybe the longest tirade with. They, they go on and on about. 666 and how the world is coming to the end coming to an end and God is real and but he's evil and he hates us because of course he does because look at everything and maybe because of these facts he feels that he is being like just like a fucking real human being like this is just an he's an honest he's more honest than other people or something like that but the security guard sums it up at the end his only rebuttal is like don't waste your life which I can't help but come back to whenever i encounter people in my life uh, that are kind of like Johnny uh i don't know that are like yes we can bring up all these things and like view uh nihilism or like being shitty to each other as like just like a, a real normal thing that we can do but it's uh i don't know like our, okay that's fine but then what like li- live your life or don't live your life kind of uh, I, lo- I love that little that little rebuttal that he has After being viewed as sort of like lowly compared to Johnny in his tirade the whole time, which is, you know, he's like, let me tell you little
0: simple employee of a security company or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that scene is extraordinary and very long, kind of like right in the middle of the movie, because I think he is the closest that he comes to meeting his match in terms of this guy knows about the books of the Bible. This guy can talk a little bit about Nostradamus and philosophy and those kind of things and you can see them kind of just coming from these opposite places where he's taking comfort in his own pessimism and fatalism that this is his way of you know raging against the dying of the light whereas the security guard is kind of using those same things but just in a more positive way that he he has this this space this quiet job where all he can do is sit and reflect and he finds that to be a comfort that he doesn't think that Uh, you know, God is evil and that man is scourged to the earth. And you can see them both using the same materials for the same ends, but going through it a very, very different way. Or even if Johnny is right, he's like, well,
1: I'm still not going to follow you, like your example. Like I don't like your your idea is it doesn't seem all that much better than my idea of having a job and some sort of security for, you know. No pun intended.
2: Yeah. I really think that his whole lacerating honesty thing is just a, it becomes a shield and it becomes an excuse for bad behavior. I I have known people like Johnny in this movie, people who sort of inflict their, their, their miserable worldview on everyone else. And then treat that like that's somehow a gift that they're imparting some kind of wisdom on you because the only they can really see how meaningless it all is, how bad the world really is. Um, I think it's a really a really perceptive portrait of that kind of of toxic
0: person because they're out there, you know. Yes, and it's it's so potent the way that uh, Daniel Thulis commits to this, and I really do think you know when people look back at like you know the greatest performances in film, that at least when it comes to like screen performances of the '90s, there's a reason that this is always in conversation. Is maybe you know as silly as it is to rank those kind of things, I think it's a totally legit towering. A choice is maybe the best, or certainly one of the most singular, and that makes the biggest impression. I really can't say enough uh, about how spectacular he is, and and magnetic, and loathsome at the same time, and funny. Yeah, I mean he's he's very funny. I mean it's it's
2: uh, some of that obviously some of that's the screenplay too, but I mean like he's he's very quick witted, um, so it's easy to be kind of seduced by by this performance he's always giving because he you know Johnny himself is performing constantly
1: in this film. I think. Yeah, that's 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 like part of it. And that is what's so interesting about it because there's there are so many movies like this. Uh, it's like it's become a cliche of like the an- the anti-hero movie that we can all like get behind a little bit because we're all a little bad, right? It's really amazing because on paper it it feels too much. That, like that a movie begins with this character who is a rapist and like we witness it. We don't even have a chance of like Thinking he's a nice guy, and then seeing that he's also a bad guy, it's like we immediately know he's a bad guy. If anything, maybe it's not uh, loving him or anything or being like interested in him. It is like a morbid curiosity that that is inspired by the filmmaking and the performance that goes on here, and it is really impressive the push and pull that happens.
0: Yeah, and that's what I am interested to ask you guys too. Is you know how does this balance out as far as being an unwatchable? Uh, you know, movie it's certainly not a a great time, but it also is entertaining in a lot of ways as it goes along and maybe not as I don't know, but it's every time that I think you know this isn't as difficult to watch as I remember it being then something happens where I'm like, oh God mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is I guess. so I mean where do you fall on that basically as far as the experience has become exhausting? does it you know are you able to stick with it? I have a pretty cr- strong constitution when it when it comes to
2: unpleasant viewing experiences, I guess I'd say. That's kind of a generic answer, I guess. I guess in this case, um, what what I would find numbing is if the film had no insight about this character, if the film was just him committing one atrocity after another or something, and if that was supposed to create this numbing effect for us. But the film is written in such a way that um, it is kind of constantly um, knocking you a little off balance, drawing you into these conversations. It's, I mean, there's almost a, there's a certain... There's almost a certain screwball quality to some of the dialogue exchanges in this. You know, I mean, obviously, this is a lot darker than anything you'd see out of, out of classic Hollywood or something. But I do think that some of that the, the, there's there's a kind of sparkling wit, even in, even in the bitterness of, of the conversations. And I think that keeps it in a, in a really uncomfortable way. I actually I think that keeps it from being this um, this sort of unbearable endurance test. I do say, say that, though, as as a man watching it, um, I could understand there being people who Almost immediately would reject this film.
1: Oh, yes. And I mean, that it's so interesting that there is humor in this, that it does get you caught up in it. It's genuinely funny at certain points. The back and forths are just so like wild and wacky uh, to follow. But even the humor is kept in check and sort of has its own arc. One of the classic things like at the beginning is that Johnny walks into a room and he immediately starts pointing at everything. It's like, oh, who's this down over here? And uh, this this little guy in here. And I'm making a little reference to that book you've never read over here and blah, 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 blah. And he, and he does that at the beginning and like very verbose. And I think that like is one of the things that like brings you in, you know, and brought Sophie in in that first exchange. And then we go to the waitress, like almost an hour and a half later of like us having to live with this guy and seeing like, Sort of the pattern and sort of like following his loops of thought that bring us yet again to he goes into the waitress's house and immediately like, oh, is this picture of Zeus up here? Let me tell you about some things that I know about Zeus, you know, and all this stuff. And by then it's like very transparent that like it's just a shtick that he has. Then it's really like sad almost this time when I watched it that these like, they're just strategies. They're just like weird strategies for kind of devouring people.
2: That's a good way to put it. It's a social strategy in some ways.
0: Uh, that's kind of a good segue into a character I think that we're try- we're supposed to directly compare to him, which um, is this character, his name's either Sebastian or Sebastian. Uh, there's another name I think that he, we find out that might be his. And Jeremy. that's always, Jeremy, okay, that's right. And uh, that's always been like the one thing that, that just kind of bothered me about this movie is something not sitting right about this character. So I would like to get a, you know your take, Alex, on exactly what you think is going on with him because it does he does get juxtaposed with Johnny pretty directly. And this is a character. I mean, for anyone who's listening, who we're not sure how he's going to tie into the plot for a while, but he's clearly this this upper class um, sociopath, sadist of some kind. Who is not curious or engaged with the world at all, uh, or charming in the way that even you know Johnny is to the extent that he is. And uh, I don't know. Does he feel like he inhabits the same movie or world as everybody else, or is that just me?
2: I think he does. I, I, th- I think that he exists almost solely as a point of contrast in the film. I think that he very, very, very clearly is a device in the film. To get us thinking about Johnny and why why we might accept behavior from Johnny that we don't accept from this guy. I mean, we, literally, we see Johnny sexually assaulting somebody in the very first scene of the movie. This character does it later, and um, I can't speak for every viewer watching this movie, but I think it, it's I think it's a lot easier to find yourself uh, drawn to and even on some perverse level, sort of enjoying the company of Johnny in a way that you would never enjoy the company of this other guy because he's not witty. Because he he doesn't have that um, he kind of doesn't have that back that intellectual background at all. He's um, he he is a lot like Johnny, but without any of the qualities that um, that seemingly redeem Johnny. But I think that the movie is part may partially be about the idea that um, we accept horrible behavior from certain people because there's something amusing or charming about them. But ultimately, these guys aren't really all that different. They behave in a pretty similar way. One of them just has certain certain entertaining pretensions.
1: Yeah, they're both abusing the patriarchy just from different, like, standpoints, um, and abusing their power uh, from there, especially towards women. But, I mean, I, I could see a criticism and that has been sort of, it's definitely unorthodox, that feeling, especially at the beginning when we start cutting to Sebastian and, like, sprinkling him in and we don't know exactly how he's going to fit in. And I, and I could see that it feels like maybe just one extra element. I could see that for viewers. There is something about him in the third act when he does finally like be, become interwoven in the plot a little bit more that works for me as this sort of again like it. You, you use the word screwball, and this coming together of like uh, Louise and Sophie against a common enemy is sort of this. Yeah, it feels a little bit of a screwball situation. Like this. Oh, this this evil guy is like. Taking up residence in our uh, in the other bedroom, of course, it becomes it all breaks down and makes you feel crazy because then you remember like, no, like he like raped Sophie and he's like this terrible monster who was like all bent on stealing everything from them and stuff. But yeah, there is something kind of cartoony
0: about it that could stick out to someone, but I, I kind of enjoyed it. I like the function that he's serving and the way that he is reflecting back and the things that you know him and Johnny do and don't have in common i think maybe it's just that he's so he so clearly does serve that function in a is the closest thing yes. that it comes to being like a pure villain or something that lee is trying to impose from the outside as opposed to every other character like no matter how small who does seem to have like you know this full inner life that is not beholden to those things so uh yeah i think maybe that's that's the part. But it doesn't bother me as much, like, this time watching it as it, it used to. Because I, I do think I feel that what he's doing is snapping into focus a little there and is something that's worth doing. You like his Speedo. Yeah, it's his strangest. Does he look like David Byrne? Every time I see him, I that's— <laughs> Oh, don't do that to
1: me. Don't do that to my head. Kind
0: of like he's the evil, the evil stop-making-sense guy. No. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> it's— one of the if I get to speak to one of the issues that I have, and I'm not sure, I'm still thinking about it, because I think it is left a little opaque. But I don't know, it seems a little obvious. Speaking of the third act, there is a moment where Johnny finally returns home after like getting the shit beat out of him for various reasons of him being Johnny and him also just being a bystander. thus proving like both his thesis, <laughs> I don't know, his thesis statements kind of, but he washes up on shore back home at Louise's and he's just totally fucked up and has a seizure at one point and he babbles and it seems like he's alluding to some sort of assault that has taken place in his past. Possibly like a sexual assault, it seems. That's kind of how I was reading it. Like possibly even some kind of like paternal assault of some kind. I don't know. did Did you guys get any of that from that? Or is that just me? I didn't know how to interpret it.
2: I think maybe I missed that. Um, in that particular that that sort of miniature meltdown scene i guess it's i guess i'd call it um i'm interested though to rewatch that now through that lens
0: yeah he's i mean he definitely is kind of talking you know delusionally or kind of nonsense at that point but i will say i'm i'm glad that the extent that the movie does leave him as kind of a mystery where it mm-hmm. it does seem like maybe this guy was somebody who um you know was a in a good was like a good college student or something or maybe he just grew up and was reading philosophy books all the time and was always this kind of scumbag. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of great that we spend so much time with him and we never find that out, uh, except for Luis, who's kind of this part of his past that they're always just kind of alluding to. And I I think that as hard as it is to see the things, terrible things that a lot of the women, almost all the women in this movie have to go through, that it does treat them generously uh you know as far as her being a character who is kind of you know treats johnny with tenderness even when uh we know that that's only going to get her so far and she is kind of holding out hope for the future in a way that a lot of the other characters aren't i mean to
1: close the fit thing I, i that was just like i do like that things are left open with johnny rather than like making any sort of excuses so i just worried about any sort of like easy excuse that like oh because X happened. That's why he's like he is or whatever, which, you know.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's a mystery where Lee's sympathies lie. You know, Lee, I mean, he's dealing with characters in this that are monstrous. And also uh, there's a deep misogyny that runs through the behavior in this film. But I don't think this is not a case where you I think you could confuse um, representation for endorsement. Um, And I think a big part of that is that um, is that Lee doesn't make a lot of excuses for Johnny. You know, it's not like there's one little piece of information that explains why he is the way that he is. I think he wants us to try to understand him on some level because he's, he's a person and there are people like him out there, but I don't think that he's interested at all in, in redeeming this guy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like he deeply understands him, but, um, is certainly not celebrating him. And I I like what you said, Alex, too, about this is not a character that changes or learns anything as the movie goes on. Uh, you know, in middle school, like English teacher talk, he would be a static character mm-hmm. who does just not go through something that dynamic by the end. But that's, that's kind of the whole point that at the end, especially he's given this chance by Louise to um, kind of return with her to Manchester and possibly uh, do something. And the film ends with, and this is, you know, we sp- go ahead and spoil things on this podcast but it, you know it ends with him basically rejecting that class that gesture and you know hobbling just endlessly forward in this amazing final shot and that is how i see his character that he's he's not look, actually looking for an answer or a destination that he's i don't know, use another Joke from a Woody Allen movie, he's a shark that needs to keep moving or he'll die. Yes. And uh, that's what that amazing, like, extended final shot takes us.
1: There's a selfishness, of course, to that gesture, but there's almost a sweetness to the gesture, too, that you can locate. That he knows deep down what he is. That it's, He's, like, too far gone at this point. That he knows that, like, oh, yeah, I, I go and spend more time with Louise, like, destroying louise so it's almost like he's realizing the best thing he can do is like just hobble off and disappear and just try and get away from the people that he cares about
2: well but hold on he robs her doesn't he i mean yeah, he takes her true. money on the way out <laughs> there's too, that too. So I, don't, I don't i don't see a ton of nobility in that exit <laughs> <laughs>
1: i think it goes round and
2: round a little bit <laughs> i actually thought this time of the ending of train spotting because and not just mm-hmm. because um you know, not just because trying to remember the name. Uh, Ewan Bremner mm-hmm. uh, is also in this, obviously in that small role. But you know, I mean, it ends with our main character. I think making a pretty selfish choice, honestly, and leaving. Um, I guess the motives might be a little different for his character than they are for Renton and Train Spotting.
1: Mm-hmm. No, you're you're right. I mean, like. Everything all points back to, like regardless of all the little theories we can have about him, it all points back to him being a piece of shit. Whether whether he's admitting it at a certain moment or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I do wish there was a cut out with uh that cool uh I think it's like Underworld or something, that song that plays at the end of train Spotting That would be great. We'll
0: cut it with <laughs> yeah. The end <laughs> all right. Well, I think that it's pretty obvious at this point, none of us are gonna be unwatching this movie because it sounds like we were all pretty taken with it. And I mean, it is a classic for a reason, but uh, I wanna make sure everyone has a chance just to say any final thoughts, anything we didn't get to, or any maybe new takeaways from this you know, most recent time of seeing it, I'll, I'll start out just so we can give Alex the last word that uh, I do think it is Mike Lee's best film. Um, I think it's one of the best films we've ever even talked about on this podcast. I do think it is a masterpiece. And uh, as far as just a character study and what character studies do, this is about as unflinching as they get and unforgiving. And uh, there's, yeah, there's no compromises at all in there. And there's something just mesmerizing about having it all wash over you and all these different encounters in a way that I can't necessarily um, always put my finger on, that it's, it's in some strange middle place, some gray area between a funny and horrific and about one specific person, yet deeply uh, profound if you just take a step back from it. So, no one watched from me. Uh, what about you, Seth?
1: I I adore it. And I just really, I remember discovering it. It was wintertime, like, I don't know how long ago, like eight or nine years ago when I watched this for the first time. And I was like immediately taken with it and have seen it a lot since then. Um, there was just something about it that I just kept going back to. And I almost, considered not rewatching it for this podcast, but, I, I, but I'm but i glad I did. I was once again, like really struck with how it hit me this time in my life. Um, I work at a library downtown, which my particular department, we, we have a lot of like homeless around and I get to know a lot of folks that have varying degrees of mental instability, economic instability for one reason or another. And I I did really feel like I... I've met some johnnies in like the past like couple years working at this library and quite often they are very gregarious and very exciting people to get pulled in by and then you do start to see like sometimes there are the folks that are in the situation because of how the world is and it's not right. Uh, There's also those people that are in the situation, I think like Johnny, because of who they are and the way they treat people. And it's very interesting and really like heartbreaking to run into those situations, the sort of people that just kind of shoot themselves in the foot for whatever reason um, and can't keep uh, human relationships. It's, it's, it's really difficult to witness, but I really... Loved rewatching it. I loved the look this time, too. I noticed that a lot more. There's a really good interview with Roger Deakins and uh, Michael Pope, I think it was, who shot this movie. Um, and they go into a lot of like, Big pop. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And it's it's really fascinating to just to think about it on that level, which it is such a cerebral movie. I, there is like a very interesting gray, dramatic look that it has. And lastly, I was also really surprised this time around. I can never keep these things short. I'm sorry, but I, I can I was just we'll cut this all out later. I cannot believe that this was 93. It's always like sat in my head as like a ni- 1999 movie because of like all the like doomy apocalyptic elements. It seems very ahead of its time in that way. Just like that Y2K, like the world's going to end and 666 is coming. I don't know. I just couldn't... It it really is ahead of its time for me and still like works in our doomy time right now. Absolutely. That's what I have.
2: Um, Yeah, no way I'm unwatching this film. Great movie. It's a tough sit at times, but I think it's... uh I think about that that Roger Ebert quote that gets one one of several quotes that gets thrown around about their you know no no good movie is truly depressing and all bad movies are depressing. I think this is this movie's too good to be to be too depressing. I think um, and uh, I yeah I think it's Thuliss's. Uh, it's just such a remarkable performance. It's almost a musicality to him at times, you know. And I do think it's prescient. Actually, I think it's it's very much um, you know I mean this is pre the internet in. In almost everyone's life, nobody—you uh, uh, know—the world had not yet migrated online at this point. But I see a lot of—I um, actually see kind of a lot of Reddit culture in Johnny. Mm. This kind of somebody who thinks he's smarter than everyone else, trolling. Yeah, trolling. He's a troll in a lot of ways. He's a troll. I mean, he's a lot worse than that too. He's—he's he's a predator as well. But—but but he's a troll too, and um, somebody who. Uh, who has this superiority complex that he's developed through through uh, the kind of echo chamber he's created around himself. And um, he's also a conspiracy theorist. I think that's worth pointing out too, that there's a little bit of t- 2022, I think in his way of looking at the world. I mean, this, all this, um, these conspiracies he has about the world ending, I think there's a real, there are real echoes of, I guess they're not really echoes when it hasn't happened yet. There, um, there are real hints of uh, of a whole generation of
0: people just like him to come. So no, we're not, I'm not tossing this one out. Yeah, if we thought Johnny was bad enough, just wait until he gets a smartphone, basically. (laughs) Exactly. Well, at least maybe he'll keep it on the phone. Right. (laughs) All right, well, speaking of prescient, our next film is something that I think is just as relevant, but coming from a very different place, which is In the Company of Men, which is from 1997, so a few years later. Uh, This, however, was the debut of Neil LaButte. He's a playwright, writer, director. He won Best First Screenplay um, at the Independent Spirit Awards. The film got some attention at Sundance. And I believe Aaron Eckhart won Best Debut Performance also at the Independent Spirit Awards, which is kind of interesting, too, because I think that both of these movies have a central performance of somebody who totally broke through in that role and Ever since has not really topped it, and that would be with Aaron Eckhart, who I think has gone on to the mo- he, he has gone on to the most success of anybody involved in this movie uh, for sure. But at the time, this was literally, I believe, his first film role. He might have been, had like a cameo in something like many years earlier, uh, but this really was his introduction to the world, and I think it's. It makes just as much of an impact, almost as David Thewlis does, as far as just a, a gut punch of a, a character and a performance. But I just for anybody who is, isn't familiar with Neil LeBute, he started out with all of this acclaim, and his his star seemed to start to fall pretty quickly after this movie. And uh, I haven't. The only one I've seen, t- tellingly, is the Wicker Man remake that he somehow ended up with on the other end of that, like, you know, continuum. Amazing. <laughs> but for a while there, he did continue to adapt his own plays, including 2003's The Shape of Things with Paul Rudd and Rachel Weisz. He's where He worked with stars like Gwyneth Paltrow in The uh, Possession and Renee Zellweger in uh, Nurse Betty, which might have been his biggest success after this. I-, I remember reading that it won something it can and— uh, but slowly, the reviews started getting worse and worse. A lot of kind of forgotten Hollywood movies um, besides The Wicker Man, stuff like the like Lakeview Terrace and the American remake of um, Death at a Funeral with Chris Rock. And uh, these days, I mean, it's like each, each review is more toxic than the last. <laughs> and I don't know. Have you seen any of these movies, Alex? Or is this fair? I've— um.
2: I've 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 dipped in and out of his work in the years since. I actually think he's made some some interesting films. Um, I think the shape of things is very much an adaptation of a play, but it's I think that's an interesting film. That's an interesting mirror of this movie in some ways. It could almost play like a like a prequel to this film in some ways. Um, I think the issue with Labute, I mean, there there are several, but I think one of the issues with Labute is that um, early in his career, it felt as though he was critiquing sort of misogyny and and toxic masculinity and throughout his career at times some of his films um seem to indulge in it a little bit more than they critique it. His kind of uh battle of the sexist thing i think tilts occasionally into uh into some ugly places i guess i'd say but i don't think uh i mean th- there's there's no question that his critical stock has fallen plummeted to to sort of the bottom at this point um but th- I do think there are a few interesting
1: films in there after this one. And he was like let go, right, from some so, some sort of some position, a theater
0: company, right? I believe, uh, like th- severed ties with him abruptly and a, a little mysteriously, kind of suggesting that there were some workplace issues with him and other mm-hmm. people, which I wasn't able to really find any more about. But it does make you wonder, you know, maybe that that's why he's so good, like he really is, writing from the outside in. Um, with understanding these people. But it is hard to watch in the company of men and think, like, this is not anything other than, to me, you know, a a scathing exploration of this. Youch! And that's that's what's really interesting. And I am interested to look at some of his movies he did right after this because I, I found this to be just blistering, honestly. I had never heard of it.
1: I had never seen it and yeah we me and mark walked watched it together and tony and we were all just like holy shit we could not believe it yeah and it's just like it is i think it is still like really under the radar um maybe because of his reputation or just because of various things but i had no idea that eckhart did anything like this and i think it is comparable to naked's the performance in naked and it's kind of sad that it's uh it's kind of been sat on a little bit i don't know i couldn't believe how, how funny and smart so much of this is and how it's set up and also in a very similar way to mike lee and that there are no big set pieces there are no big like hollywood chase scenes or anything like that even close to uh they are just like scenes that begin people start talking and minutes go by and that's the scene basically No, no, like even, even less than naked, like naked has like violence and uh, actual hands on, hands against fists, hands under fists, whatever you
0: want to call it. But uh, this has none of that. It's interesting to follow it all. And uh, this did actually start out as a play, uh, which I didn't realize. So I was reading about it afterwards, which totally makes sense. I think that when the movie starts it, it becomes clear this is like, there's a reason that he's been compared, you know, to David Mamet when he first came out, obviously because it is so dialogue-centric, so kind of theatrical feeling and a visual style. It's mostly just kind of functional. But just for anyone who's listening and hasn't heard the movie, the it, you have to hear the premise for this. It's almost too horrible to say, uh, but we do have these, these two kind of uh, a, I don't know, yuppies, you could say, if you're still using that term in the early 90s of these, you know, businessmen, Aaron yeah. Eckhart and uh Matt Malloy, uh, a much lesser known actor who plays his friend Howard. But uh, Aaron Eckhart plays Chad, who is pretty much this vicious monster uh wearing a, you know, a tie corporate guy who is, uh, basically bemoaning you know the treatment of women, of men like him and his friend Howard. And they both decide at his prompting that they're going to find some vulnerable woman and wine and dine her. And as soon as she becomes uh, attached to them both, they would both abruptly dump her just to ruin her for the sport of it. And the woman that they end up targeting is someone they work with who is a deaf person. And it, it basically just it gets worse and worse from there. And, uh, you know, they do follow through with that. But I think Aaron Heckhart's probably a good person to start with here. Was it, you know, startling going back, you know, and seeing him again at his, in this way? I'll always associate him with this performance, which is maybe
2: unfair to him <laughs> as a person, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I saw this movie in 97 and uh, it's sort of stuck with me ever since. And there, there are, you know, I think there are echoes of it in some of his films um in the years since but he is i think you're right that like thulis he is never i don't think he's ever done anything that's on this level and it's interesting to look at the comparisons between them because it's in a totally different register these two characters like Johnny, you would never confuse johnny for chad i mean chad is the type of person johnny would likely rail against but they're both these kind of magnetic monsters in a way and they both have a certain charisma and it's it's genuinely fun to watch Eckhart in this role, even though almost everything that's coming out of his mouth is appalling, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, talk about ahead of its time. His name is Chad. um, (laughs) Right. And (laughs) he is like very clearly, we don't have to learn anything about his background to know that he comes from probably some sort of horrible frat house. Some college bro frat house uh, in his past, and that turned him into the performative jackass that he is. Because every everything that he says is just like this meandering monologue that it feels almost prepared, like he prepared it that morning. Like, and he's like, or it's like uh, similar to Johnny and Naked, that they are these like well tested monologues that he has to like make everybody at the at the water cooler laugh, right? By any means necessary, no matter how mean any of it is, or sexist, or how much he's pulling anyone who's in the room down, uh, he's gonna do it because it means he's gonna be top dog or whatever. It is interesting that Aaron Eckhart kind of played to this character, even though he hasn't had much bigger like starring roles. But they've always been these sort of like white collar. Thank you for smoking, or even Harvey Dent, right? Just, uh, But more diminished versions of this, I guess. Or or more over-the-top versions of this. I don't know if it's Harvey Dent.
0: Well, it's funny. I think what makes it so effective is he has this kind of just square-jawed, handsome averageness kind of to him.
1: He looks perfect for
0: it. Yeah, which makes him this perfectly kind of banal monster. I think it's the same thing that in other, you know, a lot of his Hollywood movies kind of makes him dull, where you put him into, like, a typical action lead rom-com kind of role, and all that stuff disappears, and there's really nothing uh, that interesting or dynamic to pull you in, whereas it's something where he has kind of a huckster, you know, angle to him, like in Thank You for Smoking or... Even just pointing out Two-Face, you know? (laughs) You have him being this kind of dull, upstanding guy in the first half, and then he gets a chance to have the bad part come out in the second one. So this this really feels like electricity, like this was where it all came together, the perfect kind of role for him. And maybe he just didn't fit in with those other kind of, you know, blander roles, like did not play to his strengths afterwards. At first I almost thought it was bad acting, like, because, until you realize it is acting
1: like this guy he's performing
2: oh he's performing through the whole movie that like like chad himself is a performer on multiple levels i mean we're seeing at all in any given moment in this film other than maybe his last scene he is performing and i think the last
0: scene kind of implies there's really nothing underneath the performance yeah there's no there there yeah exactly (laughs) and uh but also, and so obviously he gets all the attention, and I think rightfully so for him being so great in it, but. But there's Howard. Howard, yeah, this Matt Malloy who uh, really, this actually was his only starring role in a film that he's ever done. Everything else has been very small roles in, in some Mammoth films actually. He also wrecks, he totally wrecks in this, yeah. I was really impressed with him this week through because the way that he he plays this kind of passiveness and ineffectuality while at the same time he's he's masking his own entitlement and and anger and feeding off of Chad's while still considering himself to be better, like a better guy than him. I think that's where this movie really like its teeth are sharp when it comes to him in particular. It's a total indictment of this self-proclaimed nice guy Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways.
2: Like, and I think that if, if naked is about, I think if that, if that, if the Jeremy character in Naked is about creating a contrast. I think that these two guys in, in The Company of Men are a contrast of each other too in a lot of ways. And I think there's kind of a similar point being made in this film on some level, which is that as different as Chad and Howard are from each other in disposition and in self-image, ultimately they're not that different. And it, it's that's one of the many ways that I think this film is prescient is that it understands something about the men's rights movement, which is that it kind of created an allegiance between between guys like like these two. It, it created allegiance between these men who are these kind of self proclaimed alphas and guys like Howie, who today would identify probably as as an incel or something, you know?
1: Right. Who have a bunch of they're they're deep. They have a bunch of information and facts that they can throw at you as to like why the world is X and Y or something. Uh, and yeah, they are these like two different strategies, and for. Uh, de- depending on where you fall, I mean, for, for at least a, a chunk of the movie almost feel like, OK, but maybe like my center here is Howard that I can like hold on to him a little bit. Like, OK, he's get- he's just getting pulled into this. Like maybe I would because I'm passive or something like um, because he's, this is, you know, Aaron Eckhart is just so charming and whatever. And maybe he's going to make the right decision. Um, and again, like I hate to spoil the movie, but we do on this podcast. Boom! 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 He does make the wrong decision. He still does, In in, in a even like debatably louder, more intense way. It in a, in, a, in a in a more uh, horrifying way because it's it's him like looking at himself in the mirror and not liking what he sees, but not being able to change a thing about it. Because he has a con. Yeah, he he has like a greater intelligence. Maybe he has more of a a conscience, a greater grasp of who he is. But that that backfires for him it was like he can't escape that nature, which again, I'm alluding to plots we haven't gotten to, but
0: he still goes along with the uh the the dates with the uh with the deaf woman. I think that we have i think identified the center of this movie that it's not like it's not so much about Elon Musk or Donald Trump, it's about the reply guys who are out there pumping them up and And idolizing them and not realizing that those guys have just as much contempt for them as they do, you know, for women or for whoever else that they're railing against. And that the the key part of the movie, I think, is when he is yelling at her, when he decides that he actually loves, I'm saying, uh, Howard decides he actually loves Christine, you know, whether he actually does or not maybe it's just a reflection of him and he's, you know, yelling at her, I'm the good guy here. Right. And you are fucking handicapped and don't get to make these decisions. And that moment is just like, it's chilling, it's devastating. It is so brutal. Yeah, he's in love and invested with his idea of who
1: he thinks he is. That's really what that scene shows. Like, that's what he wants to preserve and that's what he wants affirmation about. Uh, That's what's so devastating about that scene. He doesn't love her.
2: Yeah, I, re- I really don't know which scene is more chilling. That scene, which really is like full mask off, in that in his his sense of entitlement and this this self image he has of himself as a nice guy, as he's screaming in her face. That scene, or the scene where Eckhart's mask finally falls. Ugh. That hotel room scene, which is one of the coldest things I think I've ever seen in a movie. It's the opposite. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he is. He's very much in control. He he deliberately takes the mask off in that moment, you know.
1: Yeah, he just very quietly reveals like
0: the whole the whole deal, you know. Like I thought we had seen the worst, <laughs> and and then that that scene comes, and his his turn in that scene too, his just like dime turn from the fakeness <laughs> that we see the entire time to just a uh, he just stops mid sentence, like ah, I can't keep a straight face, and just looks at her and tells her it was all a joke and asks her how's it how it feels, and uh, that. I totally agree. That is one of the the harshest, just ugliest things <laughs> that I've ever seen. And he sees it. The film sees that all the way through to the end. It does not pull any punches. It's a fake out for the audience, too, for myself.
1: Because I, 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 there's a little bit of you that starts to believe that Chad is actually going to turn this around and that they're both going to turn this around that like this whole thing is going to backfire. It's going to be this kind of silly romantic comedy where like now they're just like nice guys who are in love because they both express this to each other when they're talking about the situation that like, you know, they sort of start to show their cards. We're like, you know what? She's actually kind of all right. And uh, you know, like despite her voice or whatever, but like, you know, I could just see having kids with her or something or whatever. They both like show their cards here and there. And you're like, And then they both, we just lose, we just lose that. And it's, it's really a feeling of placelessness uh, as an audience. And it's, it's a lot to handle. Yeah. The movie
2: really plays the audience in in some ways in, in that respect. I mean, there, there is maybe a perverse romantic comedy version of this where they both really fall in love with her or something, because again, like Chad is performing, Chad is performing for Howard. He's, And we could talk more about what that's really about, too, because obviously I think there's a lot of strategy in in this whole thing and what it's really been about. And what this I think on some level, this movie is also about the culture of corporate America, too, and about the um, the kind of behavior that people use in strategic ways to get ahead there. But, yeah, there are moments, at least in the middle of this movie, where I think we as an audience are supposed to wonder is this going to be about redeeming these awful men or it's going to be about them? You know, is love going to change them? Are they really, despite their best efforts, are they really actually falling for her?
0: Yeah. And I think the brilliant part of that is it, it does kind of tease that with Howard all the way to the very end where he is believing that he is the one that actually is, is meant for her. And we even get this kind of dramatic, like he's, he flies back to where he comes running down and, you know, in all these romantic comedies, there's always that point where it just becomes about, okay, we deceive, I deceive this girl somehow, whether it's, uh, you know, she's all that or something. And it just, will she forgive me and we can get over this hump because we've found true love. And the way that that ending just has him running up to her and just yelling and yelling for her attention until the sound just goes out, uh, literally falling on deaf ears, you could say, which kind of, ai <laughs> don't know. Saying it that way makes it sound a little bit too obvious, but uh, it really hits home the way it's presented.
2: It's it's the rush to the airport scene at the end, honestly, except that, uh, and, and obviously the movie actually begins in an airport. Um, but yeah, watching it this time really underlined how much this thing is playing on some level with, with those romantic comedy
1: tropes. It's like punch drunk love times 20 or something as far as giving us romantic
0: comedy things and then just <laughs> pounding us <laughs> into
1: the ground at the same
0: time. Well, and I think that, If there are people who are going to accuse this movie of having something misogynistic about it, which, again, I think it's a little ridiculous on its face, but, you know, some people might argue that the character of Christine is somehow kind of a plot device, that she's there to be the victim, and that is the role that she ultimately plays. Uh, So I am interested to hear— where you guys come on that. Um, I think at the very least it takes her pain seriously it, with the, the way that it lingers in that hotel room, you know, after he leaves. Exactly, I
1: was going to say that,
0: but I mean, what do you think about her? The performance, the the character, is she more than just serving that function?
2: I think she gives the character a fair amount of nuance. And I think even in, I think even in, in allowing her to allowing that character to sort of, because she has this kind of struggle in the film too, where it becomes about um you know she's in the dark through a lot of the film but it becomes about her navigating uh how to kind of let Howard down easy because in her mind what's happening is that she's dating two men and one of them she likes more than the other one and i think reducing her to just a device in this thing denies um there's a, there, I think there's a fair amount in nuance uh, of nuance in that performance, and in the way she tries to navigate that when she doesn't know what's going on yet.
1: I think she does a great job. She's such a wonderful actress, and I think it, the thing that it allows us to see is that she is very charming and funny and very likable. Uh, in in those date scenes, she's not just left to be this like I don't know. I think I think the way of making it. misogynistic would be to like just leave it all like she is just like this hapless loser just like just being really needy and uh or 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 being just some sort of like what they think like which is like a shallow bimbo woman or something like that but she is just she's let she's allowed to be a character in this i think in a very real way and also have like her own revelation of like kind of that, yeah, she's very human in that she's dating two people at the same time and she's she's working through that and uh, admits that she had troubles with that and uh, comes clean about her, her own uh, misgivings and confusion about it at, at that scene with Howard and I think does a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, that that's a total misinterpretation if someone has that opinion.
0: Yeah, and I totally agree with you guys. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree, and in a way, you know, there is a sense where it's not that dissimilar from, say, like the Monica Bellucci character in Irreversible, where the thing, the the film does pivot on a horrible act that is inflicted on her, and there is a certain way that she's representing, you know, innocence or something that is being lost, but. She, as the same as in that movie she is being is allowed to be a human and a full character and the film is doing right by the pain that she has to go through um while at the same time what's just so bold and tricky about this movie is it's to continue that metaphor further is that it's like a film that is sticking us with her attacker you know with the rapist for the the whole movie that these are the people who are our main characters, which is kind of what fits it into this theme too. And I don't know, a lot of movies don't really do that. It's like we said, there's a difference between an antihero and someone who you're like actively rooting against when they are the main character. And maybe that's, that can be really tricky territory. Maybe that's why we don't see a ton of movies like this or I don't know. Do you think there's anything to that someone who would watch this movie and say, oh, you know, you couldn't make this today?
2: I, I think you would struggle to release this movie and not get some, probably some, um, I don't want to say wrongheaded, but probably some, we'll say exaggerated discourse about it. I think there would be the, the representation endorsement crowd, I think, would have some problems watching this. And um discerning that this is maybe a critique of, of that um i there is probably there's some kind of case to be made for the fact that labute does have a lot of fun with with these characters and with the dialogue it's sort of uncomfortably funny at times so i could see that used against it in some respects um but i don't think he ever loses sight of the fact that this is very much about a a deeply toxic culture and a to- uh, and, and about toxic masculinity
1: yeah i mean let My first knee jerk thing that I was gonna say is that it's like it's too subtle in its critiques or something, but at the same time, like it's incredibly verbose. Again, like maybe it could be construed in certain ways just because it just because it exists, I guess, because it is like a a horrible thing that exists. But there's the scene where Chad makes his a subordinate who is black. He shuts the blinds and says, "Like, show me your balls." and It's like this horrible, like awkward sequence after also like criticizing his, like the way he speaks, like saying that he, basically saying that he needs to sound more white and then also like making him show him his balls and he does. And it's this horrible long scene that's so awkward. Yeah, I can't imagine seeing that in a movie now because it is just like, yeah, it's just, there's certain things that are just like, even if they are trying to get at some sort of truth, it's still
0: just like, awful that they that the scene exists at all you know well and he does not get his comeuppance in this movie he wins at the end his character gets <laughs> right. everything that he wants at which you find out is even not even based in a normal motivation you know that it he seems like he's he's a spurned lover acting out on that at the beginning but instead you know his only explanation is that he just did it because he could he was still with his girlfriend Uh, He was probably more interested in uh, fucking with Howard as much as, you know, with some other girl. Just fucking with you, dude. You take things too seriously. It's like,
2: (laughs) it's It's a power move. I mean, ultimately, right? It's a power move. I mean, because by the end of the movie, Chad has Howard's, Howard has been demoted and Chad basically has his job so you start to understand this whole thing as part of as part of the the kind of cruel politics of the corporate world you know which doesn't let anybody off the hook i mean i think that his misogyny in this movie is very real and, but i think that his motivations have a lot to do with with just getting on top it's this success first mindset you know Um, Which I think links this movie also to something like The Wolf of Wall Street.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. That scene that Seth brought up in particular, I think, is very much about the corporate (laughs) mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I love that Labute does just imply that Aaron Eckhart's character has just been setting up his friend the whole time. That he doesn't come out and say that in his climactic revelation to him that it was you know he was the one who messed up the faxes that got him demoted or he just does a passing mention earlier in the film that he was passed over as being the lead on this project that Howard was put in charge of and it's implied pretty strongly but he doesn't come out and say that that was something you know that he was intentionally doing so I think that's just a, that's just a clever bit of of writing and there's lots of of really good stuff like that. Just little character building details. Uh, One of my favorites is when he's having, they're having a conversation in the bathroom and Howard drops a bunch of change and uh, Chad just casually is like, oh yeah, here, let me help you. And he just pockets like half of his change before giving him the rest back. Like he can't even not just steal a couple cents from him and it goes totally unremarked upon <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and mean, the title is i think i think i think is telling this is
2: i think this movie ultimately at its core might be more about the relationship between men and the that kind of um the ugly dynamics and play in that than it is about their attitudes towards women although of course that's a big part of it too definitely aptly titled i do have to wonder if if there might be sort of um mra types today who might watch this film and look at Chad and see somebody who's sort of, um, I don't want to say a role model, but sort of um, a model of some sort. I don't know. I mean, uh,
0: uh, I'm not interested in doing that polling
2: myself, but... (laughs) Right, you could definitely,
0: anyone who's inclined to laugh with instead of at could certainly find that there. And I think that's the big
1: problem and goes back to the discussion about it. Like, could this be made today? Like, no. And it's probably for those kind of reasons that we do sort of have more of... an idea of, like, that occurring and that these, these are big decisions that we make with what big art we allow on the big platform, right? Uh, that, unfortunately, it's, like, really shoved in our face that there are people unless we do have it very much in the forefront, like, flashing in your face to the point that it drags the movie down that there is, like, something telling you that, like, no, don't forget these guys are bad and you don't want to be like them, like, I think that's like kind of the unfortunate place we're in with storytelling right now
0: on a on a big platform. Well, it's a, yeah, it's the classic you know taxi driver Travis Bickle thing. You can wear the T-shirt with him putting the gun, the bloody fingers against his <laughs> head, or look at him as this person that is you know with just fed up and had too much, and you can totally miss the whole right, the whole point of it.
2: It's a larger conversation, too. I think the level of responsibility a filmmaker has to signpost the characters, um, how the audience is supposed to feel about a character. I'm generally of the opinion that audiences should be trusted to draw conclusions, particularly in a film where the behavior is as awful as it is here. Not everybody feels that way. I'm
1: I'm with you, and uh, yeah, most of what I was saying was explanatory. Like, yeah, devil's advocate a bit. Um, And yeah, in in an understanding sort of way, but also, yeah, I think that is the thing. A lot of that thinking has kind of bullied art into submission in some ways, and at
0: least in some big areas. Yeah, it's a never-ending conversation. And uh, I'll just say, and these will be my final thoughts so we can wrap this up here too. Are you trying to end the never-ending conversation? (laughs) Well, we've all got uh, families to go home to. But um, yeah, I, I think that's, this movie remains a harrowing experience, and one that is not diminished. Maybe is even more uh, relevant and and harder to watch and more powerful today than ever. Uh, whatever happened to Neil Debut? If you know, if you got one thing out there, at least it's something that was as impactful for this. He might not have turned out to be the next David Mamet. Um, although uh, these days, I don't think we need another one. He's already off of the 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 grid now. Um, but I, I do agree that there is some really effective dark humor in here that completely dries up after a certain point. Um, but leaning into that, it is just enjoyable in its scathingness uh, until things just get you know too horrible to watch. And uh, I think that, yeah, it's a movie that deserves to be seen and maybe a little better known if, for nothing more than to see Aaron Eckhart at the top of his game and uh, to open up these kind of conversations I'm not sure that I've seen this particular thing done so well and uh yeah even visually I think that there's occasionally he does some some pretty good job of opening things up or having little touches like them having that conversation in the bathroom and just keeps cutting to this close-up of the guy's feet instead of his face like while he's talking to him that uh you know maybe yeah that Labuke guy shows a lot of promise maybe one day we'll see him follow up on it but uh Seth, any final thoughts here, and then we'll give Alex the last word. This movie seems to fit really well
1: with the, the zeitgeist of its time. Uh, with the whole, there's a lot of movies that I think are maybe praised more than this one in the genre of like white collar cubicle rage or whatever it is. Uh, like, uh, but this one deserves so much more than it's gotten, I feel like. It's so powerful and does so much with so little um, that it has only like maybe three characters really you know, at the end of the day and just works wonders with them with just stationary shots and letting the dialogue flow and letting actors find their way with a character and be convincing and do what they do best. Yeah, it, it, it is such a testament to that that you don't need much. You really don't need much to make something really impactful.
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's a brilliant film. Um, and one that has not aged a lot in the, in in the last, uh, in the last 20 years or so since it came out, I really think that a lot of what it's about and a lot of what, a lot of the resentment and the ugly hostility that it's digging into, I think is, is unfortunately very, very relevant today. And, uh, I think to do that in the form of something that, uh, I mean, this really does, this is sort of, to me, this, this movie sort of looks like a platonic ideal of bringing a stage play to the screen too. and just um, capturing all the qualities about the play that um, that may have drawn people to his work in the first place, but never, never feeling uh, stiflingly stagey or anything. I think it's just, a it's, it's a great, it's a great showcase for these actors. And um, yeah, a film that I think actually is pretty smart about the, about kinds of misogyny and kinds of toxic masculinity and the way that they sometimes align and the way that they influence each other.
1: Yeah, that's been a point of friction for me with certain Mike Lee movies, actually, that they feel like filmed plays because they are just like really dialogue-heavy, like character pieces. And the ones that are elevated in my mind are like naked, which do feel like they transcend that. And part of it comes from maybe this improvisational, like wanting to get like, It it is like about having these actors that you're just wanting to get basically create sizzle reels, create the best that you can create with this one person. And like it's their last movie they'll ever make or something, uh, which, you know, happens sometimes. And other times it feels almost like precious that you are trying to keep everything, all these great moments that were like when we were filming and in the moment it was like this wonderful improvisation or something but i don't know if it necessarily like serves the greater film experience but company of men really feels like tight feels really tight and lean and like everything is supposed to be there uh to its credit all right then three uh Three big bro high fives for this one. (laughs) No, I was just kidding. It sucked. Boring. (laughs) Oh, oh no, please.
0: (laughs) Can they not be bro high fives? Yeah, don't touch me. Three polite nods. (laughs) So, all right. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is really a blast. It w- it's great to hear you again. I was a big watcher and listener of the AV Club's podcast and everything. So hopefully, you know, maybe someday we'll see you doing something like that again. I hope so. Thank you. Are things going well at Cron so far? I know that's kind of a new, still a newer position for you now, right? Yeah, it is new. I'm, you know, I'm getting my, I'm getting my footing there
2: in some ways. Um, but yeah, it's going great. It's, um, it's. There's some new challenges with. Um, for covering a city I don't live in, but yeah, the the job's going great. And I think we're running a lot of good stuff. If, uh, for those listeners who don't know, it's, uh, it's www.cron.com. Uh, it's a website associated with the Houston Chronicle. We do write about issues that matter to Houston, but also there's national arts coverage and, uh, movies and TV shows and music that you might care about. We will link to that in the episode description.
0: And it's nice to see that, uh, you know, I've seen bylines popping up there too from, you know, uh, other people I know that you used to work with and who I enjoy reading. So I know I've seen your writing in there and Mike D'Angelo and Katie Reif. And uh, yeah, it's it's really neat. It's a cool new place to go now that that other place is dead. (laughs) So I encourage everyone to go there. Um, Anything else in particular that you wanted to, you know, plug or draw attention to? No, go to cron.com. Read read the great culture coverage we're running there.
2: I would I would love if you did it. <laughs>
1: All right. And Alex, uh, Mark and I will be patiently
2: waiting for part two of your Weezer list. Uh, <laughs> okay. The next, next 300-odd images. I'll get
0: on that. <laughs> this
1: is a man's word. This is a man's word.
0: Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti hosted by me, Mark D'Otavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krauss. You can find Seth and I on Letterbox under Mark D'Otavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Carry the heavy load Man made the electrolyte To take us out of the dark Man made the boat for the water Like Noah made the ark